Chapter One of Mark Twain and the Happy Island by Elizabeth Wallace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Greenman. Mark Twain and the Happy Island by Elizabeth Wallace, author of A Garden of Paris. Chicago, A. C. McClurg and Company, 1913. To all those who knew and loved Mark Twain on the Happy Island, this little book is hopefully dedicated. A note of introduction. This little story of the Happy Island has a place of its own in Mark Twain literature, in that it presents an idyllic picture of our philosopher-humorist in the serener days of his later life, a picture of which the author herself was a part. Mark Twain always loved Bermuda, from the first day of his first visit to that last day of his final visit, when he sailed away, with the shadows already gathering just ahead. Miss Wallace's story is a tender one, showing him still full of life and health, and of that gracious sympathy with childhood which was always one of his chief characteristics, and added comfort to his later years. The world will be the better, and Mark Twain's memory the sweeter, for these gentle chapters. Albert Bigelow Payne Chapter One The Sign of the Shell The road to the hotel wound upward, and on either side of it palmettos rustled noisily beside still and somber cedars. Out from under their shadows stepped a gray figure with a crown of glistening white hair. He walked lightly and looked about him with an air of interested and unconscious expectancy. As he came nearer the hotel veranda, we recognized the shaggy eyebrows, the delicately arched nose, the drooping mustache. Indeed, we had realized his personality the first moment that his figure had emerged from the semi-tropical background. He could be no other than Mark Twain. He passed up the steps and into the hotel, his head held a little to one side inquiringly. We heard a soft, drawling voice for a moment and then a carriage clattered up to the veranda, bringing other guests, and we lost him. For it was the day when the unsteady but regular steamer brought us, once in ten days, news and passengers from the world. Two weeks before, we, the Lady Mother and I, had crossed the stormy sea, a sea so stormy that the short voyage of forty-five hours seemed an eternity cutting us off from our previous existence. This feeling of finality had given a mysterious attraction to the green islands, which rose gently out of the sea before us on the early morning of the third day. This and the change from bleak and wintry December to glorious glowing summer made us suspect that we were under the spell of some lovely enchantment. This suspicion became settled conviction as our boat, so pathetically small in the New York dock, suddenly loomed up into stately proportions as she picked her way through the treacherously smiling channel. She had a wary but important air as she turned and twisted between the tiny islets, and then drew up majestically alongside the little wharf and this conviction was deepened into happy acceptance when we drove over white coral roads, bordered with palmettos and royal palms, when we saw banana groves and twenty-foot oleander hedges, when we breathed the fragrance of magnolias, 
and caught glimpses of gleaming white houses through thick tropical foliage and white roads winding up little hillsides and when there flashed before us a dash of white spray there could be no doubt of it a fairy had touched us with her magic wand and we were again in the dreamy happy days of the golden age the great rambling hotel which was to be our home stood half a mile from the dock and down close by the shore it was the only large wooden building on the island and that in itself was a distinction its long verandas looked out over the blue waters of the harbor and sailboats came clustering about the stone pier hoping to tempt unwary guests soon after coming to the happy island i found a companion and a playmate it made little difference that margaret's skirts were short and mine long or that she wore her hair down and i wore mine up and that she looked twelve years old while i only felt twelve all this mattered little for she had one of those understanding souls that knows with keen and sure intuition many things that others learn slowly and uncertainly so she accepted me as her playmate and we took long walks together and exchanged confidences and wove wonderful tales of magic and adventure and were quite content as a usual thing margaret and i felt but a languid interest in the passengers who came for they did not invade our world but on the morning that mark twain arrived we felt an unusual thrill and we wondered if we might not see him once in a while until that day there had been very few guests for it was the first of the year and the beginning of the season but now the dining-room took on a distinctly populated appearance margaret's table was not far from ours and that day she was sitting alone presently mark twain came in and as he reached her table he stopped and spoke to her he not only spoke to her but had a conversation with her i knew then that he had recognized her as one of the choice souls of the earth as soon as margaret had finished her luncheon she came over to our table her sweet face beaming and said that nice old gentleman is mr clemens and he is so funny he pretended to know me and he wants me to ride with him in the donkey-cart this afternoon but i told him i had an engagement with you and couldn't go i told her i would release her from her engagement with me for it was an honor to be invited to go with mr clemens an honor which she ought not lightly to forgo then she told me in detail the conversation she had had with him he had said after a moment of apparent hesitation and in a tone of surprise why how do you do i am very much ashamed of myself but i believe i've forgotten your name margaret how do you do I i'm afraid i don't know you mr clemens reproachfully have you forgotten me i remember you very well your name is janet margaret oh no sir it isn't janet mr clemens i beg your pardon i have a very bad memory oh now it comes to me you are dorothy margaret entering into the spirit of the interview i'm afraid you have a bad memory sir a very bad one 
mr clemens undaunted now that's too bad i was sure i would remember i think it must be margaret margaret yes that's my name mr clemens but i'm very much grieved that you should have forgotten me i think you ought to have some sort of a memorandum of me so that the next time we meet i shouldn't be subjected to the same humiliating experience here mr clemens took a little pink shell out of his pocket and gave half of it to margaret take this and guard it carefully and every time we meet henceforward you can show me your half of the shell and i will show you mine and if they match i shall know it's you and you will know it's i of course margaret gleefully agreed and as proof she showed me her half of the shell repeating appreciatively isn't he a dear funny man and just here although not in chronological order i must relate the after story of the divided shell some time afterwards mr clemens had two pretty gold enameled replicas of the shells made and he presented one of them to margaret the other he hung on his watch fob many months later margaret went to visit mr clemens in his connecticut home when the carriage drove up to the door mr clemens was there to welcome his little friend but margaret looked at him gravely hesitated a little and then said do you know if there is a nice old gentleman by the name of mr clemens living here mr clemens answered by drawing out his shell and showing it to her she had hers in her hand she compared them for a moment her face lighted up with a mischievous smile and she ran into his outstretched arms saying why you are mr clemens end of chapter one the sign of the shell read by john greenman